I think Gartenberg should write, you know, <laughs> about uh, Apple updating its Mac line next. And <laughs> um, <laughs> that's not wink, wink. Yeah. Yes, please, and and bring more desktop-like ca- uh, capabilities to the iPad, please. Thank you. Yeah, um, yeah. As soon as possible, if he could just write that, that would be fantastic. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 103 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitra and I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Aaron Bay in Whitby, Ontario. Hello. And I'm also joined by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And we have Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hey. Mark, you don't uh, travel as much anymore, huh? I do not travel as much anymore, that's correct. Yeah, that's good, right? Is that good? Yeah, that's I think good. that's good. Yeah, I was If traveling, it were me, it'd be very good. I was traveling a lot in 2015. Uh, probably too much for my own taste. Uh, I was away from home kind of every other week for a while there. So it's mm. uh, much uh, nicer this way. But you're still gainfully employed, right? Mm-hmm. Excellent. Living out of a suitcase. Yeah. So it's hardly news when it turns out that he's in San Jose. Okay, so, so we got some unofficial Ask MTJC, right? Mm-hmm. That's uh, by tradition, it appears to be the first thing we do. Jaime, do you want to follow it in? Well, the two that I see are from me. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one is uh, a maziograph, and it's one of those like drawing apps that helps you create tiled repeating patterns. I want to say it had iPad Pro support of some sort. I think there was a reason why I sent it to uh, Tim and Tammy, because they both have iPads Pro. iPads Pro, very iPads well done. Pro, I love that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so tim since tammy's not here did you try that out i didn't try it out but i did look at it i can't remember if it was a purchase or a get but i, I was i was not able to i was looking at it on my phone actually when it's you 99 cents I the, you can't look whatever okay. i still haven't had a chance to download it but uh, i did look at it, it does look interesting because that kind of uh you know uh, design work does look uh interesting like to be able to do mirrored mirror drawings and stuff like that but i i it looked interesting, like I said, but I hadn't had a chance to try it yet. So it's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, they say intuitive, but I kind of wonder how it is. I'll, I'll be interested to see, since you have the, the more of the art background, and see what your opinion mm-hmm. of it is. So future follow-up to the follow-up. Sure. Uh, and then the other one was the iPad Pro easel for or from Avila Design Company. So I don't know, uh, given the size that it is, I'm guessing it's probably more applicable for your larger pro than it is for the the smaller. But did you take a look at that link? I did, actually. That does look interesting because, you know, it's one of the things is when you're when you're drawing, you're sort of sitting in a different position than than uh, like, you know, you can put it flat on the desk. But some, but a lot of artists like to have it tilted up like that. In fact, though, I think the Wacom Cintiq that um, Tammy uses all the time on her when she's drawing, she has, you know, one of those monitors that she has a pen to draw on with so that's always tilted up on an angle as well in the same sort of like drawing board kind of angle you know what i mean like i don't know what slope that is but so this is this a lot it has sort of like little rubbery feet i guess so you can just sort of put your ipad down and and you can move it around like you know uh when you're drawing sometimes you actually want to turn the uh the paper slightly on an angle and that you can do that with this device it seems and it's reasonably reasonably priced, yeah. Yeah, and it looks like it's, I don't know, on the screenshot here, I would guess it's like a 30 or 40 degree angle. And then they show a real nice close-up of the texture that's on there. So you 
you can leave it, you know, they show it here, like right near the top edge of that, uh, that easel. And it apparently will keep prevent the iPad Pro from sliding down. Mm-hmm. I thought that might Does be. the iPad need to be in a case of some kind to stick to that surface? Nope. No, so it just sticks like that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, they've got See, the it. thing is, I have the fancy silicon case from Apple, and um, it, it's got the you know the little trap or triangle or folding over trick that it does, and that so you get one sort of angle. It, seems, it looks to me like this um, easel uh, thing that Jaime selected to send to us here. Looks like you can adjust the angle, which is, I think, much better for persons who want to do this kind of work. Right. And it's available in white and black at seventy nine ninety five. I assume that's U.S. I don't actually know where they're from. The only thing about mm-hmm. it is how they... I, I see some pictures where they have it on this stand and you're typing on it, like on the on the on-screen keyboard. And I, I ergonomically speaking, I, I have a problem with that because you're you're angling your wrists up and that's just not very you know, comfortable <laughs> for long-term use. It's, uh, it's kind of bad for your wrists. Um, mm. that's like, you know, what like keyboards they have, the, the, the backstands and you're supposed to put those down, yeah. right. And have your keyboard as flat as possible. So too, mm. with your iPad, you should have it kind of flat for drawing on it though. It looks nice. And, um, if you have a keyboard in front of this stand with the iPad on it, then that's nice too. I can imagine. But, uh, that one use case, you got to watch out, especially mm-hmm. as you get older, like I am. <laughs> Everybody laughs at that. Anyway, so nice looking thing. All right, let's go to the follow up then. I pasted uh, another comment. Oh, um, what's this? Uh, that was the, somebody re- replied to a podcast link on on uh, my site instead of going to the website. So on episode twenty two. Yeah, a long time are, ago. Are we are we serious here? Is this what we're doing? No. <laughs> let's no, go just... back eighty episodes. And... <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought that was kind of weird. I thought, oh, Tim maybe just missed it. But no, this is like a brand new, fresh comment from August 1st, mm-hmm. which is uh, two days prior to this recording. Oh, okay. I'm trying to find it. Uh, why don't you read it to us, Tim? It says, thanks for the info about app incomes. The, the numbers are really interesting. I have, have you seen this post by Monument Valley Creators? And I assume it's the same one that we talked about on the show. Uh, at last, someone has come up with a post that shows the actual hard work behind building an app. Uh, and how much effort it takes to get to the top. Uh, I've read dozens of interviews with developers of successful Apple apps, and in most cases they claim that anyone can build a hugely popular app and become a millionaire, like our friend, who shall remain nameless. For example, here is a guy called Chad Muerta, who says that he neither had coding experience nor much money, yet he developed his app and made him a millionaire. I don't know if I believe that, but... Have you heard of a so-called survivorship bias? We look up to the ones who survived, who achieved success, but we cannot see the ones who failed, and we never come across those stories. Too true. Uh, Even reputable professional mobile development companies cannot boast uh, more than one app that made it to the top. For example, here is another link she's put into seven years in the business, and I'm sure they know their stuff, and they're hugely experienced, but still only one project of their portfolio they describe as a million in profit. I believe that uh, to be able to achieve your goal, you have to pay much more attention to the mistakes made by those who failed rather than make them yourself, make yourself stale by reading delusionary success stories. I don't remember what the gist of our episode was. That was the development by numbers episode where we, we uh, Monument Valley had posted what, they, what it cost to build the app, right? In fact, the link she put in the art in the comment is the same one. This was like a year and a half, two years ago. And, um, 
I was going to say sort of uh, more more topical on the sort of a similar issue is today's announcement from Tim Cook that Apple had a record-breaking month of July on the App Store, highest ever monthly billings and money paid to developers obviously. Um, wow. Yeah, and uh that's obviously a lot of money. They've uh, App Store developers have now earned over 50 billion dollars. 50 billion. In Tim Cook writes, "Congrats on your success and such inspired creativity." <laughs> Because it takes a lot of creativity to come up with free-to-play games. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, you know what? The commenter's point about uh, paying attention to the stories about the losers, um, you know, to paraphrase, is is very interesting and, and worthwhile. Uh, those stories are not typically available to us. And um, if I had to guess, I would say the reasons for that are that nobody wants to talk about it. And uh, the people... People would like to hear those stories if they're published, and they are from time to time. But most people don't want to talk about when they fail because, uh, you know, they, they don't want to be castigated for their lack of success. Um, but most of the time when you fail, it's because, you know, what you've done isn't really uh, catching on and uh, you haven't maintained the level of interest and uh, intensity that is required to make a product successful. Or you don't have the secret sauce or the good fortune that certain other developers have, have received over time. And it could be a combination of all those factors. Um, so I don't know if there's any huge mysteries as to why people fail. fail. Um I think there there are some mysteries around why some people succeed, and uh, um, and I, I think that's just uh, something that you know all of us together are continuing to pursue, and it's kind of the story of our our lives and careers, you know. And we, you, you, and I, uh, my fellow hosts and listeners of this podcast, are in an ongoing struggle to come up with an answer to that question, and I am. Uh, certain that there are lessons to be had from the failures, but the successes are also and uh, very interesting while also being more available. Many times the the successful uh, apps or what we what we'd like to call successful apps in terms of profit or or functionality or whatever, there it's a very small percentage. I think it's less than zero point one percent was a, a number from the Gartner at one point a couple of years ago uh, in terms of app developers who were happy with the success of their apps. I guess. I mean, why you create apps has to be the the motivating thing. I mean, um, if you're if you're in if you're only in this for the money, then you're in the wrong profession. And you know, we've talked about the fact that the for the last year or so that the app market has now reached a mature level where it's now a business, and you have to approach it that way. If you're if you're in it if you're in it to make an in, a decent income, you have to approach app development like a business and or a serious business. I mean, in terms of marketing and design and and the, all all the efforts that go along with that. I think just you know knocking off an app and expecting to make millions is, is a a far flung dream, right? So and um, it's like trying to get a hit record. I've said that many times before, right? Um, you know, there can only be so many huge pop stars and the rest are just going to flood uh, YouTube and SoundCloud with, with songs that they hope someone will discover someday, you know. And that, in the same sense, is the is what the App Store is to a lot of us developers. You know, we have to ask ourselves, why are we doing this? Like, we've said it before. Going, going to the App Store and building an app in order to sell in the App Store and to make your money from people buying apps on the App Store is, a, is not a path to success. No. So you got to come up with something else. Okay, well, that's depressing. So um, <laughs> let's have some follow-up. Uh, last week on the show, we talked about um, Mike Gartenberg's column, sort of uh, asking or wondering why Apple wasn't doing more to educate 
its customers about the benefits of iPad Pro. And lo and behold, this week, Apple had launched a commercial. The new right. ad does pretty much exactly what Gartenberg was, was hoping they would do. Um, with this ad called iPad Pro, What's a Computer? And in it, the ad highlights uh, the use of iPad Pro as people today often use a PC. Uh, it shows uh, working on documents, um, using the pencil to annotate diagrams, creating slideshows, presentations at the same time, using messages and watching a video in uh, split screen or whatever that's called. Um, and and all, all the while being super thin and light. To me, it just, you know, in that 30 second spot, just does everything that uh, Gartenberg was talking about and that you know, I was violently agreeing with in in mm-hmm. our discussion of that article last week. So I think Gartenberg should write, you know, <laughs> about uh, Apple updating its Mac line next and <laughs> um, <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Yeah. Yes, please, and and bring more desktop-like ca- uh, capabilities to the iPad, please. Thank you. Yeah, um, yeah. As soon as possible, if you could just write that, that would be fantastic mm-hmm. because they are clearly listening. Obviously, you know, I'm kidding, right? Because yeah, uh, you know, yeah. it's only they must week, have had but... that in the, in the works for a while, for sure. Obviously. Yeah, but I mean that. But exactly what we were saying last week in in that um, it didn't seem you you felt doubt that um, Apple was putting any kind of you know role, giving giving the role to the iPad Pro in any sense, right? And uh, we talked about it in comparison to the Surface and a bunch of other devices, but um, and and whether people could take it seriously as a computer. And I think that's one of the reasons why they came up with the, what's it called, smart keyboard, um, as well as the Apple Pencil. The Apple Pencil, and for people who prefer natural drawing style of working, and then the keyboard for people who want to uh, use, the, use the, uh, the iPad for document creation, for replying to emails, you know, or just generally... Uh, keyboarding around right yeah just large-scale text input you know which yeah, uh, sure. when people think about a computer whatever that means they yeah. um, um they need to have that idea that there is a keyboard yeah. here and so very cleverly i think apple you know showcasing both the keyboard but also the pencil and using it uh in in actual productivity contexts so um, i don't know if i mentioned before that yeah. I, I did i did go to the apple store one day and take the uh the keyboard for a test drive um, probably spent about five or ten minutes working with it because I, I, you know, I kind of look at it and you know I don't know if you've ever seen those roll-up keyboards where they have like the rubber keys, yeah, and mm-hmm. uh, and they're, they're they're just goofy. They're like you know they're they're not they don't feel anything like using a keyboard at all. And so in the pictures, that's kind of how I sort of see the uh, the keyboard and how it closes. You know, in, in some of the ads and shots that we've seen before, I was a little doubtful about that it would you know be very streamlined when it was closed. And then sort of the, the sort of uh, I don't know how to describe it, sort of like a transformer-like flip that you have to do to open the keyboard and prop the key, the iPad up. Um, kind of flips round over on itself, if, if you know what I mean. I um, yeah, so, but having used the, you know, using the keyboard, I definitely added it to my list of things that people could buy me if they wanted to <laughs> with a birthday coming up. Nudge, nudge, oh, yeah. quick. Yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it totally is. I would, you know, it, it's a, it's, as accessories go for iPads, the iPad Pro accessories are, are crazy expensive, but it's it's a, a little on the high side. But you know, compare that to um, no, I've forgotten the name of the other company that makes a good, decent keyboard case. Logitech. Um, 
Logitech, thank you. They they also have one that's you know within a reasonable amount of money uh, as Apple's one. But then again, you, you've got the Apple one with the with the smart connector. Um, just makes sense to probably go that route. But yeah, it, it definitely was something that I would really seriously consider buying. I I've tried that keyboard in the store as well, and I did not come away terribly impressed with it. It just the keys feel mushy to me. And while yeah, it's, not, it's, yeah. it's serviceable, that's the best thing I can say about it, I think. I feel like it's a serviceable, serviceable keyboard that, uh, that, that will get the job done, but it is far from my favorite keyboard. Uh, I think I'd be more inclined to buy uh, an external Bluetooth keyboard over either of those that are available, the one from Apple or Logitech's Create keyboard, which both are, the, I think, to date, the only ones that use the smart connector. Right, right. I wasn't sure right. about the Logitech if it used that connector or not. Yeah, at the same time that Apple came out with the iPad Pro 12-inch uh, 12.9, they uh, announced their own as well as Logitech's. Um, and I think theirs came out a little bit later, but it's definitely available now. Um, but there have been no others since then, which is really unfortunate. Yeah, I wonder if, again, is is the iPad Pro still sort of an outlier in terms of people's choices in terms of what iPad they would buy? Yeah. And maybe that's what this yeah. commercial is about, is to sort of present the idea to people that that it is a replacement for, like the low-end Macintosh, which we talked about last week, is is what happens to that bottom of the line, or, you know, the bottom of the, what do you call it? Yeah, the bottom of the line um, uh, of products that they have for computers. I mean, you know, for years, when we were arguing against the, when we had, when we were, you know, dragged into kicking and screaming the Windows versus Mac argument uh, for a long time, when the, when, remember those white MacBooks came out? Around that time, there was you could say to somebody, "There's if you're if you're only using internet search and you're using you know Word and you're you know doing text entry and just tootling tootling around on the internet and writing emails, there's no reason why a MacBook wouldn't replace a Windows PC." So, I mean, maybe that's where they're sort of positioning this or thinking of this computer, sorry, iPad slash computer fits into the market. Not unreasonable. Or to compete against a Chromebook as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, that is another big oh, Chrome. thing. Chrome, yeah, right. Can't forget that because uh, Apple's getting its butt kicked in the school systems uh, when it comes to iPad versus Chromebook. The Chromebook is not it's not a Windows or an Android type system, or is it, or is it an Android system? It's it's, it's, its own iOS, actually. Uh, sorry, not iOS, but its own OS. system. Yeah. Mm, yeah. But it's, yeah. A real, it's a real minimalist one. It, uh, it, it doesn't really do much except access the... App, the applications that are available on the cloud. Yeah, it's like those. Remember, there was a for a while there. There was like a Windows, um, really low end Windows computer. I think it had like a a gig of RAM, and it and it, it didn't run proper Windows. It was sort of a pseudo Windows. You're, you're thinking of Windows RT, right? Okay. So yeah, you're thinking of RT. It? Yeah, we talked yeah, about right. this last That's week. The, but not 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 the. It was out around server. five or six years ago. Is that right? Maybe maybe even more than that. You're talking more than that. Were, Are you thinking of like netbooks? So they maybe they ran yeah, a they stripped really down cheap version of Windows, I think Windows XP. Yeah. XP. At the time. They were running XP. Yeah, they ran right, yeah. XP for years after XP was for dead. Of, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. XP died or never really died. <laughs> yeah, you might, you could probably still find it installed on business machines today. And sure. uh, you know, netbooks prolonged its life considerably because it was. Uh, the only operating system that would work reliably on this uh, very anemic hardware. 
So but I as have to I keep recall, the they were like you know they were under five hundred dollars or something. Sure, so they, they were, were yeah. very approachable. Five hundred like Canadian, to, I should say. <laughs> two to four hundred dollars, yeah, yeah, um, that you could get them for. But that's the, that's exactly what's happening with Chromebooks nowadays. Same, very low powered hardware, but um, it's running now a, a brand of Linux essentially, the the Chrome OS, oh, right. uh, okay, which is yeah. nothing more than like uh, you know KDE or GNOME, uh, and you know all it does is run a Chrome web browser. Um, and it's it's been developing over the years to have more desktop-like affordances, like the ability to read uh, local media, like uh, SD cards and such, plug in a printer, for example, um, and have sort of offline storage so that it, you don't... Like in the earliest days, uh, you could not use a Chrome computer. You literally couldn't use it unless it had an internet connection. Right, but nowadays, right. uh, they... They have uh, got some offline modes, and you can actually run web applications offline nowadays. So uh, the Chromebook is becoming a much more appealing option. And given its low cost, um, schools feel much safer because, A, it's something they know, right? Like, it's it's a PC, essentially, yes, right? It can't be they, harmed, they, basically. They get right? that yeah. model. They get the model. Like, an iPad freaks them out because they don't understand what an iPad is, Right. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. a Chromebook is something that they're very comfortable with and know and understand. And of course, the other thing being super cheap, right? Like you, you get a kid that throws one at the wall, breaks into a million shards. You can easily just pull another one off the rack for like 200 bucks. Yeah. Whereas an iPad, as you know, costs uh, at least 400, 500 uh, when purchased in bulk. Yeah, and it's still a bit of a struggle for Apple. I mean, I think I mentioned about three months ago, I went to, I was invited to a, an Apple event downtown Toronto um, at the Apple office geared towards enterprise uh, people to show the the audience that that an iPad you know, could fit into an enterprise environment, that iOS wasn't really this sort of goofy, you know, uh, GUI sort of operating system that it actually had proper security behind it and it was backed up, you know, uh, back, backed by good things and it could be managed on, on uh, various types of uh, MDM systems and, and could fit in. Because like you said, the, the IT crowd at these large companies, they know the XP and the and exchange world and they're really, really hard to get them to think about anything else, right? Even though they should. Well, they're very hard to persuade <laughs> because, you know, if you remember from the old Windows days, they, their jobs rely on their understanding of this particular form of magic. So, yeah. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, it's nice to see Apple educating customers again about iPad Pro. And, and obviously, like, they, they must be selling an, a significant number of these right because as we discussed last week in their quarterly results for the last quarter apple's uh, average selling price for their ipads has has taken an uptick right yeah um, bump, yeah, yeah a, a definite noticeable bump and that that can only be explained by the fact that they are selling more ipad pros as a percentage of ipads sold so there there's a significant number being put out in the market there so no questions well so, actually it that only implies that there are, as you said, more iPad Pros sold than the lower-end iPads, which could also be explained by the market dropping out of the low-end. Uh, you know, in other words, they're, they're not selling any of the lower-end ones. So that one number by itself doesn't really tell you much about their overall success. Yeah, that, that is a fair point. It, it, it's still ambiguous as to which possible case it could be. Yeah. Um, but changing the ASP like that is, is at least an interesting detail. 
And so how does ASP compare to like what what kind of number is that? Like it's average selling price, right? Yeah. So but that's not actually numbers of units sold. It's just the cost of goods sold, kind of thing, right? Well, it's you know you add up the total number of uh, sales for iPads. You divide by the total number of iPads, and that's your average sales price. So so if you sell ten of them and nine of them are low end, one is high end, you tend to have a low ASP. But if you also sell ten, but nine of them are high end, one or one is low, you have a very very high ASP. Uh, but you still sold ten either way. Okay, and that doesn't does that reflect anything in in the uh, amount of money that they made in that quarter at all? Or do we see Aaron? Do you remember seeing anything about so, that? Or? So it it affects the amount of money per unit that they sold, but not the total yeah. amount. Not the total right, amount. right. The total amount could have been down hugely. We don't. We don't. I'm not saying it was, but it could have been down yeah. significantly and and you can still get a higher asp so that number by itself although it's an interesting number is is not uh, it doesn't tell the whole story anything else about this uh, 50 million aaron you- no i got nothing else for that so that ipad pro ad i couldn't have been the only one who saw it and then listened to it again with my eyes closed really? and said i really can't tell if this is for the ipad or for the surface pro really mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah try just it try, try it just because it's fun try, yeah. try try listening to it try listening to the cadence try listening to the feature set that they're talking about and you could put you know microsoft stuff right behind it and it would be exactly the same commercial just when you think you know what a computer is you see a keyboard that can just get out of the way and a screen you can touch and even write on. When you see a computer that can do all that, it might just make you wonder, hey, what else can it do? That's interesting. Yeah, that kind is of, interesting. Um, cocky music, would you say? <laughs> <laughs> it's jazzy, man. It's jazz. Yeah, yeah I would say like the music was music. more Microsoft-ish than, really? than uh, Apple-ish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. But it's interesting, though, you know, we have the reverse thing here in Canada because we we tend to have commercials that are very visually uh, motivating, but they're, and there's a voiceover. And the reason why they shoot them like that is because they can do the voiceover in English and then they can do a voiceover in French and use the same uh, video content. So it's sort of the reverse reverse kind of concept there. Hmm. But you're right. You could totally slide in any, any product you wanted in there. And, you know, we could, we could go get some, like, old... Uh, you know, CRT tube computers and run that ad and the audience died. Yeah. Well, I wonder if that's exactly <laughs> what they did. They, they made the video and then came up with a voiceover later mm, or whatever perhaps. message they, they decided to, to use. It's just the sort of thing that they can do in series. You can imagine a number of different ads that uh, have a similar message uh, and show different scenes. Sure. Yeah, and that's kind of how they've been advertising the iPad over the over the last you know few years. I think they they kind of have these aspirational uses use cases for you know there's like people climbing mountains and there's you know people doing brain surgery and then there's someone you know doing a valedictorian speech using the iPad and yeah. um, you get all these different kind of you know large large larger than life metaphors for why. These yeah, I didn't so cool. like those ads nearly as much as I like this one because mm-hmm. those were so specialized. 
Um, like, you know, to, you know, go with your astron astrology class and look at the stars or to, uh, to be a surgeon and, you know, learning about, about vascular systems and things like that oh. are not, are not, uh, something that's going to resonate with your average viewer of an ad, right? Uh, whereas this is a much more common set of use cases and is more likely to appeal. You can probably sell a lot of uh, a lot of devices if they show people playing um, Pokemon Go on them. Is that even available on the iPad? <laughs> That's a good I'm question. Sure. I, I have to check. But I, That's I'm not sure a good question. <laughs> I decided not to comment before, but uh, I'm going to assume the record App Store sales were almost certainly due to Pokemon Go. It's yeah, that was, well, you know, it was it does, my read on it as well. It does mention that at the very bottom of, the, of this article that Aaron's posted here. Pokemon Go set an Apple record of the most ever apps downloaded in the first week of availability and is already considered the biggest mobile game in U.S. history. It's now estimated to have downloaded more than 100 million times, and it's set to bring 10 million in revenue across the iOS and Google Play app stores. 10 million, huh? Wow. Yeah. Well, I don't know. That doesn't actually strike me as a lot for something that's been downloaded 100 million times, but uh, good for them. Isn't the, the top revenues, like Clash of Clans sort of thing, making that much per day? Like the, uh, the vast majority of the fifty billion dollars that have been paid out to developers are going to these kinds of top yeah, the in the top ten free to play games, right? Yeah, the mega studios, yeah, for sure, yeah, absolutely. So you know, when I, I just get so upset when I see Apple talking about this, about how much they're paying to developers, um, I just like I just get this picture in my head of Tim Cook, you know, backing up a dump truck full of money to just like five house, guys' yeah. house, you know. Not Five Guys, the Burger People, which, you know, delicious. And they wait, wait, all the wait. Money, but, the article does sorry. say it's $10 million in revenue per day. Okay, let me go back. Um, what are we talking I mean, about? Daily, here? yeah. Yeah. The very bottom. Uh, daily. daily. Yeah. Oh, Pokemon yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. Very right, good. You know, but I don't think that's the biggest revenue generator on the App Store. You know, because I've, I've heard... Yeah. Is it is it number one right now? Said I think to bring so, yeah. It is in, number one in top grossing and number two in free... Uh, under Bitmoji keyboard, your avatar emoji. So yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it's like making a lot of money. Ten million a day is more than ten million since it launched. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but that's uh, totally on the brand, though, right? I mean, of course, I mean, it's gotta of be, course, got to be Pokemon Halo effect, yeah. right? I, I frankly, I do not understand this Pokemon craze. I feel entirely out of touch. More so, and this this doesn't help at all. Making that much money per day, um, but that's that's what's happening though with this at this level right there's this cluster of of companies that are making scads of cash all the cash and uh, and then all the other people that are making nothing it's the same old thing it just uh, i just don't want to hear apple talking about it anymore it drives me nuts i mean the whole pokemon uh, go craze if uh, no offense to our listeners who play it but um I, I don't get it either but there's you see kids walking down the street playing it you know and and uh, there's a few there was in a couple of news stories yesterday we have a ferry terminal downtown and they've they've actually asked nintendo to take the ferry building off the game because it's blocking commuter traffic nice yeah and uh, there's a, a, a for part of my talk in, at indie dev stock there's uh, i found a poster that is in a hospital that says, please don't play Pokemon here in the hospital out of respect for our patients and our staff. <laughs> so it's becoming a more, you know, and there's lots of road signs that say don't drive in Pokemon. And Yeah, it is. It's absolutely a phenomenon. It's just, it's out of control. <laughs> so you can imagine why. Um, but, you know, like 10 million a day, like I've, I have been hearing numbers like that for other games. 
sustained though like was that well at the is, is pokemon part? gonna be sustained like i'm talking about clash of clans and things like that yeah. right um, so, so Empire, classic clans so, yeah. um Peak the ones that advertise that, on was television. It, did it stay consistent uh, for oh, a, God, a, as long a period of time? I'd, I'd be interested to see some graphs on those. That, that's yeah. really interesting that? your, your girlfriend was advertising that game for a long time. Was that Clash of Clans or Age of Empires or something? Um, that star of movies. Who are you talking to? Yeah, but I got really I'm lost. In a, Who's okay? Advertising I, I mean, as a girlfriend. Well, fiance, <laughs> but, uh, but I knew I got the impression that I'm really lost on the on the advertisement piece. Well, there was a there was a woman advertising this particular game, and she forgot what it is. Uh, and then, of course, you got Arnold Schwarzenegger talking about the App Store. You know, that's going to need some follow up because this this sounds really intriguing. I well, I'm drawing you know, a blank it, on this story, but it sounds really okay. Cool. But I'll, I'll find it. I'll find it for you. But but just as there's just as that, a side note, a Victoria's Secret model or something, Kathy Upton, yeah, or something like that, or was that her name? Something like yeah, that. something like that. Yeah, it's it, we actually there's a link on one of our notes. I'll look it up. But um, uh, it's an interesting side note here. So a, a friend of mine who I went to university with, we interviewed him on on Roundabout, and the episode came out last week. Um, he was telling us about you know working in movies and working in commercials. Apparently, you can make way more money in a commercial than you can in a major movie. As an actor, yeah, I've, heard, I've actor. heard that. If it's yeah. a hit movie, so for example, uh, Flo, the insurance lady. Yeah, she she makes a ton of money because it's all on residuals. So if you get a long right, running exactly. commercial, and and it's you know it's one of these ones that you watch a hour TV show, you see the same commercial four yeah. times. Uh, they're they're uh, they're making a lot on that. Yeah, I, I don't said, know if they're making more than you know like a. Uh, well, hang on. Here's an example. He said movie, but, he yeah no that kind of crazy yeah, money no but yeah. but he was in a Super Bowl commercial. He was telling me and uh, telling us. Usually Super Bowl com- commercials are shown once or twice and then they disappear. But this particular commercial he was in was shown over and over again for several months. He made $70,000 that year on that commercial in residuals. Right. So now Crazy. I see. So like r- removing the, the weird outliers like, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio or something or Jennifer Lawrence. Like obviously <laughs> yeah, those yeah. like make way more. But I think what I heard is that you're much more likely as somebody who's not in that elite group to make exactly, more money yeah. off of that. Like... You know, it, it major motion picture. He probably got what, like the catering that day on the, on the other on the movie, but on this one, he actually gets paid. You know, a small amount, but adds up over time. Amount. We've digressed. Yes, we have. We are Welcome so good about that. chaos. Yeah, great. <laughs> okay. What's the next? Let's go on to something else. Let's look at uh, the next article on my list here, which is an interesting article. I thought. This was posted on July 27th by Uncle Bob, who is a well-known personality, it seems, in the programming world, um, you know, and is probably just as crusty as he sounds. Robert C. Martin is his name, but uh, he goes by Uncle Bob. This article is called The Churn, and it is about how developers, uh, as a group, <laughs> uh, not picking on anyone in particular, <laughs> um, seem to be in a vicious cycle of always trying to make new things or use new things and abandon old things that are doing just fine. Thank you very much. And so this uh, article is po- is is written in sort of a, an interrogatory format where, uh, you know, uh, the author is responding to questions um, about how this this programming paradigm say object-oriented programming uh is not useful anymore because now we have protocol-oriented programming for example it goes through the entire uh discussion sort of laying out what he calls the churn and that's basically a metaphor for how you know we 
apply huge amounts of effort, like all of our programming time and energy, into creating new things over again while we have things already that work fine. His example in here is around Eclipse. Yes, you know Eclipse, the IDE that uh, yeah, Java developers it, yeah. use. He describes it as, a, as an incredibly powerful uh, system, but it's being replaced right now for other things that, uh, you know, like I think Atom is one. Um, other IDEs or, or text editors that do not have the feature sets. Meanwhile, new programming languages and frameworks are coming out for web development, for application development that are solving the same problems over and over and over again, but never quite getting all the features that that we used to have. And so we spin a lot, our wheels a lot, trying to build things up again. Take it or leave it. Like Whether you believe this or not, to my mind, this is a huge issue uh, when you're a career programmer. And I, I was hoping to bring it to our August group to discuss uh, whether, A, this is um, true, <laughs> and, and B, what uh, we should do about it. Or we can keep talking about Game of War and Kate Upton. No, no, it's okay. You let me listen to see how the sausage is made. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, I did read this, and, and it was an interesting point about, um, and I, I kind of lived through this, right? Because on one, in one of my Slack groups is, is all about the, the, the Swift and, you know, uh, all the cool stuff that's happening in Swift 3.0, and I hear about that all day long. And the other side of the coin is I work for a company where we're still working in legacy Objective-C code. And so, you know, and, and we, you know, we've done small things, like we started using Swift in our, in our unit testing so that, you know, the developers on staff can get more familiar with, with Swift. But it's kind of like you're right. There, there's some, there seems to be this, you know, um, shift around from one programming paradigm to another. And, and it's kind of like, you know, if you mention Objective-C at a conference these days, you're going to get lynched, you know? Um, you know what I'm saying? I do. That, yeah. And, you know, it's, we were joking around. I think you and I were joking around at one point, maybe on the show even, about the fact that, you know, in a few years, uh, someone who knows Objective-C is going to be worth a whole lot of money because people companies will have moved on and they'll have all this legacy code and no developers to support it. Yes. I'd be curious so, to know if Mark or Jaime have any thoughts about this. I don't know that I agree with the premise. Like, it, it's, a, it's a cute idea to me. And, like, and I get the point of, you know, chasing the latest fashion is, is not as productive. I don't think it's reached any sort of, like, asymptotic area where, oh, it's going to be really hard to get more progress. I mean, sure, if we spent less time bickering over whether Golang or Python or Swift or Objective-C or, you know, whatever the new thing is, is better. But I'm not quite so sure that I see that, like, oh, yeah, well, it's almost impossible to make much, um, you know, much more advancement in, in some of these areas. Like, it's, it's such an you know, early days, and then software development is rather young as a profession or even as a thing that exists. So I, th I think it's really hard to, to foresee where the next, you know, 50 to 100 years will go. Right, exactly, yeah. Well, I, I see I see what uh, what you're saying, Harvey, but I... But I I do kind of agree with the guy, with Uncle Bob, who's a who's a big curmudgeon, and I appreciate that. Uh, I do agree that people seem to spend a lot of time arguing about this, you know, minor little thing versus that minor little thing, and whether this framework is better than that framework, and and uh, I don't know, maybe it's a maybe it's an age thing when you're younger. 
you know you haven't been doing it as much and so when a new thing comes out it seems like it's revolutionary and world world changing uh but you know the the more you've been doing the stuff the longer you've been around you realize that well there's always new stuff coming out and very little of it actually changes the world although some of some of it of course does i don't know i i i see, I see where he's coming from i think there's definite truth to what he's saying you know i think about uh look look at objective c versus swift and uh, this puts me in mind of what we've been hearing from Manton Reese. Um, do you guys know Manton? Nope. Yeah. He's a uh, software developer in Austin, Texas, and he does a podcast with uh, Daniel Jalkett called Core Intuition. They've been doing that podcast for many, many years, maybe 10 years by now. He just, a year ago, quit his full-time job to become a fully independent software developer, working on um, contracts as well as his own products that he's working on. And... One of his contracts of late uh, has been written in Swift, and he has coming to the end of that of that project and has decided that he's going to sit out Swift, at least oh, until really? version four comes out. Huh. Um, and the reasons are really that it, it remains a moving target; that the tooling isn't quite there yet. Um, he's he's not feeling comfortable writing it, and uh, he overall like. And this is the big point, and sort of what comes back to Uncle Bob here. Um, he doesn't get what the benefit of Swift is over Objective-C, where he still finds himself wildly productive in it, and there's no apparent improvement in his uh, programming capability when he's doing it in Swift, whereas he's he's far faster and more efficient in Objective-C. And really, like you can look at that and say, okay, I, I can see where he's coming from, um, and the reason really is that, um, as we've always said, it's not just the language, it's the frameworks, right? As long as we have UIKit and, uh, and Foundation, and they're all sort of Objective-C oriented frameworks, the benefits that we get from Swift um, aren't being fully realized yet, I don't think. And again, that goes back to what Uncle Bob here is saying. He's like, you know, we've got the new thing and it's shiny and everybody's rushing towards it. But at the same time, you know, is it really, really better? Because, you know, we're, we're rebuilding things up from the ground again in order to get it working properly. Um, and that is still a process that is continuing because you've got, You've got uh, Swift, the new language, but we're still using the old frameworks, the old Objective-C frameworks, which are basically like hammered on with planks and, and rusty nails and, and duct tape uh, to the Objective-C runtime, and Swift is kind of working from that. So we're, we're really just, um, you know, using a new language with an old framework. Um, now, once Apple, you know, ultimately, and I think inevitably, comes up with like, um, you know, whatever the new framework is called... Uh, you know, UX kit, whatever it might be, uh, that is written in Swift and is built with sort of Swift paradigms in mind, then you've got something new and different and hopefully uh, noticeably better. So that's that's sort of an example that I think about when I when I read this. Well, I, I, yeah, I would agree with that pretty strongly, actually. I, 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 was, I was pretty surprised at how quickly people seem to jump onto Swift uh, after Apple announced it and how, how quickly it became the, the so-called dominant language. And, and I think a lot of the reason for that is, is well, it's fairly obvious, is that Apple pushed it so hard and stopped yeah. talking about Objective-C and things like WWC. So in terms of visibility, Swift is, is everything from Apple. Uh, but, I, but I still would claim that if you go around and talk to people who are actually doing real production work, as opposed to writing blogs, not to disparage people writing blogs, but 
uh, people doing real production work, from what I see, it's it's predominantly still Objective C. Well, there's clearly still a ton of Objective C legacy projects out there being worked on. Mm-hmm. It's got to be that yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. I just um, you know, I mean, let's let's take a straw poll of the four okay. of us. Who's who's doing Swift for production work right now? Uh, so my hand is up. Okay. <laughs> mine is down. There, it, it, it's impossible to do it. Yeah, mine too. So one out of four of us, and um, I, you know, oh, we're we're that, using like I said, we are we are starting to use it a little bit. But yeah. uh, Jaime, why is it impossible for you to use it? So our all? our requirements are to deliver a closed source SDK, and Swift, quite frankly, does not support that right. in this case. Oh, right. Like Adam, like that's the one that would be untenable. Like even if we decided to change, uh, sorry, chase the wave of changes from every minor little version of of Swift. Even if we decided to do with that, the the closed source piece makes it unusable uh, for that uh, that distribution model, unfortunately. And that's that's just the way it is, you know. To address uh, Mark, you earlier said about how Apple is really pushing Swift very hard, and I think that is really at the core of why people are chasing it so so readily. Right. And um, you know, because be- as Apple developers, you know, like not talking about Java or Eclipse or or you know reinventing Ruby or whatever, anything. <laughs> We're Apple developers, and at at the core to sorry about the pun but there it is um we we have to follow what apple does and uh we will become irrelevant very quickly because apple moves quickly and and if we don't then we can very quickly get left behind i think which isn't to say that we're going to become irrelevant if we continue programming in objective c obviously that's not the case but we have to continue accreting these skills and if we don't then then we'll find ourselves very quickly left behind and not knowing what what's next or or not understanding what's next because it's it's much easier to to incrementally add than it is to take it all in, in clumps sure. right does that make sense sure because well, yeah. if you th- if you think about it from apple's point of view when they first brought out swift and i think we've had similar conversations to this before when they first brought out swift it was very obviously not really for prime time i mean clearly right uh, yep. version swift version 1 so, so Apple couldn't just come out and say, "All right, Objective C, turn it off, start using Swift today." O- mm-hmm. Obviously, impossible, right? So, so they didn't. Still impossible. Right, right, right. So, but but if they if they came out and said, "Well, you know, this is a beta, this is kind of a beta version, and and that we know it's not really ready, and it's growing, and you know, we'd like you to take a look at it, but you know, it's not, you know, it's not really ready yet," then nobody would have used it. <laughs> so, so they kind of had to take a a, a in my opinion, a stronger stance than they really meant uh, t- towards should have. towards the use. <laughs> well, no, no. I I think from a PR point of view, they made the right decision because you know if, if they had an internal roadmap that says, okay, we want to have, and I'm just completely you know pulling this out of the air right now, we want to have eighty percent of our users, our developers, converted over to Swift in five years. Let's say. Uh, well, that might have been a, that might be uh, still might be a reasonable number. Uh, but if they had come out in year one and 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 sort of played it down, you know, were low key about it, then they'd never get that growth. But by pushing it very hard, uh, they might actually achieve that. And I bet you they're looking at each other now and and saying, "Wow, you know, we were way more successful than we ever thought." That here we are, year three, and it's all anybody's ever talking about in terms of of, uh, of code. 
Yeah, Objective C is essentially dead. You know, well, like it, not you not know, dead. It, it dead, depends. Dead in our minds, you right? Know? It depends where you're looking. Uh, yeah. As I've been saying, you know, yeah. if, if you look at the the press, yeah, Objective C is kind of dead. But if you look at what people are actually doing, but not necessarily talking about it and not writing about it, I still think it's predominantly Objective C. Yeah, and you're going to see too that if you look, well, if you look at the documentation, there's still there's still a side by side you know switch switch between Objective C and Swift on on most things, right? Um, there are some there are some you know interesting arguments behind you know switching over to Swift, you know uh, type safety and, and uh, compiling much much better uh, smaller smaller applications, you know apparently a lot less uh, load on processors and stuff like that, and that may be something future. Is coming down the road in the future. My concern about, it, as Aaron said before, was you know I lived through the uh, Steve Jobs standing on the stage and, and reading uh, Mac Classic. It's it's last rites, you know. Um, I'm always thinking that Apple's one that, like you know twenty you don't know WWDC twenty seventeen. They may come out and and, and re- read the eulogy for Objective C. I don't right. really think that's going to happen. For but Swift, that could for happen. Swift, you mean. No, no, no. As an Objective C is dead, and we're we're burying it now, and we're no longer going to talk about it. Kind of oh, like oh, they did with classic, see. right? Yeah. They, 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 oh, you know, I'm sorry. Really, I thought, yeah, I thought you were making the 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 different point of you were worried about Apple's well, I mean, history it, of it, introducing a new technology, and then yeah, uh, open oh, forget about that. Cyberdog, you yeah, know, you, yeah. can, you can you can go down the road and, and and name off the language road apple road apples that Apple's left behind too, right? Right. And because right, of changes right. and things, right? So, right. I mean, even even I, the PowerPC versus Intel argument, right? Yeah, and I think that's a that's a pretty strong reason for why Apple had to go all in to Swift in terms of the 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 visibility, because if they didn't do that. It may never have got the uh, the the adopted the adoptedness uh, that it has, and and we might be seeing it laying by the wayside in a couple of years. That's true. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Well, so Still, Aaron, let me ask yeah. you some questions about your your experience working in Swift, since you're the one that's doing it full time. Are you doing more idiomatic kind of Swift style these days? Like, are you getting into yes uh, procedural with value types and or no protocol? Yeah, protocol with the uh, yeah. Accessor ty- or what do you call them? I have it written in my notes here. <laughs> value types. You said value types. Yeah, that is yeah. correct. Is that what you and meant? Associate, associated types, yeah. types yeah. and stuff like that. Associate types is yeah. what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah, we're definitely doing a lot of that. We've got uh, a lot of protocols in our app, and um, we don't use as many value types uh, for objects, like model objects, because we're using Realm. And so um, Realm requires you to use objects based on their own object class which is based on ns object so uh we we can't go full on in that regard and core data would have the same problem it has to use a managed object yes quite clearly so um in that sense uh we are otherwise very very uh swifty i would say (laughs) and um uh my my team members have adopted protocol oriented programming full-throatedly and Mm -hmm. uh, so i'm learning a lot about that and it's uh it's been a really terrific experience um but at the same time of course you have this uh race to stay ahead of apple or at least up to apple speed um we've been uh adopting the uh the changes in swift 3 we're currently developing an xcode 8 beta 3 right now beta 4 came out this week uh, but we have not updated to beta 4 yet because it has more source breaking changes um nice. and we have to wait for some of our um dependencies to be updated as well 
to the beta four before we can adopt it ourselves. So there's always going to be this lag time. But, uh, you know, overall, we are absolutely having to run around like chickens with our heads cut off every time a new version of Xcode beta comes out. Um, and that's a pain. It's a pain. But, um, you so know, can I ask you why, you why the, the group decided to go with uh, Swift 3 right out of the gate? Like, was, yeah, we're you, not launching. There, you're not launching for a while off? Or? Yeah, we're not launching until next year. And so okay. we know that, um, X, that iOS 10 is going to be on the majority of people's phones by the time we launch. Right, right. Um, and so we can afford to do this. Interesting stuff. Well, it'll, yeah, it'll be interesting to hear when you guys get closer to whatever the end is, I guess launch day, whatever that is, uh, whether you think it was worth it to take that path. And there's no way of knowing now, right? Because uh, yeah. there's too much time between now and then. But uh, are you going to find that that it was great because now you're ahead of the game when it finally happens? Uh, or was it bad because you had, to, you had to redo so many things along the way that you could have been a lot further if you had gone a different way? Yeah, you know, the thing that uh, that we're finding, I think, is that um, our pace of development isn't really dependent on us <laughs> so much as it is uh, because we're working with Android, we're working with web, and we're working with uh, back-end teams as well, um, all in tandem. So, um, you know, we're not, uh, we're not always uh, pushing full steam ahead in order to develop features. We find ourselves with time on our hands from time to time. And so we can we can take the time to be careful about how we develop things. I don't know how much I can say here, but <laughs> yeah, I, I'll leave it at that. I, I don't think we're going to regret that. Honestly, I don't. Um, I, I don't see it coming like that. And especially by the time we do launch, when um, long before you know, like by fall, we're going to be back on you know mainstream tools, right? We're not going to be on betas anymore, and we're we're going to come out of the beta process like caught up a hundred percent. Everything's honky dory. For until, another six you know, months until Swift 4 comes around and changes Yeah, but again. we're going to launch before Swift 4. <laughs> so that's fine. <laughs> that's okay. It'll be a Swift 3 project. I think that uh, Swift is an interesting, or the stuff that's happening with, with Swift is, is interesting for, for people like Greg, who really likes, you know, languages and different kind of things, you know. Because um, I know he get, he likes to, to talk about uh, Swift concepts a lot but now he's now he's working for a company working in objective c so it'd be yep. interesting to see what his follow-up on that is the delicious um, irony yes isn't it great well um, you mentioned that but uh on, i think it was one of the weeks i was out um i was noting the fact that you know facebook hired greg heo the swiftiest of developers yeah and sure. not you know one or two weeks later they have uh, the facebook sdk in swift was it a coincidence right. maybe <laughs> He's yes. not that He's good. not that Come fast. On. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like a rather thin wrapper. It didn't look like they covered everything. So well, yeah, he was probably yeah. still in boot camp at that time, no? <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what was, his boot camp yeah. thing was. Oh, maybe it was. They believe <laughs> well, in check-ins on the first day. Maybe his first check-in was, you know, Facebook.swift or something. Um, yeah, I, I think they're definitely, you know, Facebook is seeing the writing on the wall. I mean, Facebook, again, like we, I think we talked about the, I think billions was the number you guys threw out last week uh, in terms of numbers of users, right? Yeah, um, uh, well in excess of a billion. It's, it's in their best interest to be looking at the latest, latest stuff as well, right? Sure. So, well, especially yeah. given their history, where they they initially when they initially came out with their iOS app, they they made the mistake of doing it in a way that was not very forward looking, and suffered for a long time, and had, of course, this is all rumor and hearsay, but 
but the the story is that they had a a big uh, enlightenment moment and sent their whole development crew off to get iOS training uh, at, uh, at you know one of the well-known shops and came back and you know redid everything. So and, and that was a painful experience from what I hear. So so it it it, it seems like uh, maybe they've learned from that experience and are trying to be a little bit more forward-looking now. If you remember the the early day history, uh, they. They initially developed that 320 library that came out of Facebook, and that was an, you know, an iOS two kind of thing, iOS three maybe, and did a lot of reinventing of the wheel, and and then as uh, the operating system advanced, it became harder and harder and harder to support that. So their app became more and more clunky, and at one point they even had I don't remember his name, uh, one of the the prominent lead iOS engineers came out very publicly. And said he's not working on iOS anymore because it was, well, you know, the standard old excuses of it's a closed garden and you can't do the things can't do the things I want to do the way I want to do them, uh, and therefore iOS is bad and I'm done with it. And so very you know publicly loudly uh, quit the development effort. Um, hmm. And so this is I mean this we're we're talking 2010 here maybe. Sure, yeah. Uh, so this is kind of ancient history at this point, and and you know, it's sort of in in hindsight, it looks like he made the wrong call. I think, uh, well, yeah. But uh, yeah, so they so Facebook was kind of behind for a while. They had a reputation of having having a very slow, unperformant, kludgy app for a couple of years after that, until they until they finally redid the whole thing yeah. natively. Natively, yes. Yeah, yeah. and I, I do believe that I, I recall that um, the bigger branch had a hand in in the first sort of iteration of their iOS app. After that, that's after that. That's yeah. That was the one yeah. that I yeah. I didn't want to mention the name, but but if you since you did, uh, yeah, those were the ones. <laughs> so I, just as a side note here, um, so I remember three twenty being an, uh, one of those libraries a lot of people latched onto, and there was one wasn't there a triple T one or something like that that people got into for a while, and they, they you know for doing menus and no, that was the same one because the the oh. uh, the namespacing was TT I think something like that three twenty yeah. Right, they had yeah. the you know the pull down menus, and they had the alternate pickers was, and that yeah, kind of stuff. there was a lot of stuff in there. It was huge. It was enormous. I, I used it. I inherited a project back in this had to have been 2011. I'm thinking I inherited her, inherited a project that was heavily based on that. They had done you know the the typical thing that makes third party libraries a problem is started going under the hood and tweaking things to make it work the way they wanted to. These are these are the, the developer who was working with the 320 library had done this. So once the version of iOS rolled around, then that particular version of 320 uh, was no longer valid, and uh, but couldn't be updated because of all the customization they had done. And so I had to spend a lot of time under the hood digging around, trying to figure out what's, what's going on underneath there. And man, it was... Um, well, you know, at the time it was probably great, but but after a couple of generations, it was so out of date and out of touch with the the Apple way of doing things that by the time iOS five came around, I just had to rip it all out, and it was all it was all gone because it was completely non maintainable. Well, yeah, and that's one of those like web based frameworks, right? No, no, no. It was like, all native. It was all it native. Was native. Oh, okay. Yeah, but it was written uh, around the time of iOS two. Maybe I was. Yeah. What was the point of it, though? Like, why why were they um, replicating native controls? Well, it was pretty tough to do things back then, right? Like, but this is all, yeah. This is all UI components. That's true. 
uh, and in the early days, they were kind of limited. Some of them were, were pretty limited uh, and and inflexible. They they wrote their own. Uh, I, I think that was in hindsight. I think that was an overreaction to a perception of them being more limited than they were, uh, because not only did they do things like make their own controls, but they changed the whole view controller stack system completely. They had this URL-based wow. way of doing of handling navigation controllers. Oh. So basically, you would define in your app delegate, you would define a URL and a view controller that was associated with that URL. And then there was a whole bunch of methods that you'd call inside your view controllers to load the load a URL, and that would push the view controller. So they completely, completely went around the whole navigation system built into iOS, whatever it was, 3 at the time. Uh, and so as things changed, you know, as the, as the, uh, well, ima- imagine trying to do that with, for example, uh, you have your controller transition, uh, uh, you know, custom transition delegate, that kind of stuff, right? Just, a, just flat out impossible. That's crazy. Yeah, it really, crazy. it really was crazy. It really was Whenever crazy. I see people do that, I, I just think to myself, they must really hate Apple. <laughs> well, know? and I'm, I, you know, I can't think of another example right now, but you know, I've seen uh, other companies, other efforts to replicate or replace uh, key technologies like that. Yeah, and it's like they just want to do whatever it takes to not have to work with Apple technologies. Yeah, well, you know, back in we all know this back in the the bad old days, people really, really did hate Apple. They uh, still do. <laughs> yeah. Well, developers in particular, there's there was yeah. a real, real negativity towards Apple back in the, back in those days, and and uh, a real resentment that you had to do things Apple's way, uh, and and I think that was a big part of it. Uh, if you if you think about it, there was that approach that I just described with the URLs is a very web oriented approach, and and iOS at the beginning was was not very web-ish if you know what i mean at all it was much more like an embedded system old school c as opposed to quote more modern web-based um you know java type stuff right so so um yeah so i think a lot of people back then who 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 wanted to get into ios because it was the new hot thing but had a whole completely different set of skills had to figure out ways to map that over and, and this is this is one of them yeah they, they put in an enormous amount of effort i mean it, it was actually kind oh, of ridiculous yeah. how much effort they put into this library but but <laughs> uh it, but but again that's that was sort of the whole they were a victim of their success right they they spent so much time and effort and got some initially good stuff out of it but had put in so much time into it that that by the time things moved on they they couldn't uh they couldn't maintain it Yep, and eventually it falls by the wayside. Yeah, and good riddance. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's a great example of what Uncle Bob's telling us about, though, right? It's Absolutely, like, Ooh, shiny. Absolutely, you know. But yeah. you know, what are you doing rebuilding something that's perfectly good over here? Yeah, yeah. stop yeah. doing that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh goodness me. Yeah, we're kind of in a unique um, situation here with with iOS development. So I, I looked up on Wikipedia the. Objective C history, just to refresh myself. And on the one hand, we have Objective C that moves so slowly that it can be accurately described as being glacial. Um, <laughs> and on the other side, we have Swift, which 
could be looked at as irresponsible in how quickly it's changing. Like fundamental <laughs> yes. things like, yes, you know, yes. oh, maybe classes should all be, you know, final and unchangeable. It's like, what? Like <laughs> now? Like that's the kind of fundamental decision you make early on when you're like, you know, should we have an integer class? Should we have floating point? You know, how should the inheritance model work? Um, yeah. I don't think you decide that three years in, right? Like it's yeah. too late to make that sort of change. Uh, so between the two, and I'm looking at Objective-C 2.0, uh, says here at the 2006 WWDC, right? We got all these mm -hmm. fancy things like properties, properties. and dots yep. and tags, fast enumeration. Um, that's really, that, that's too long of a time, right? That's that's 10 years um, on there. And it, and it inherited some, some weirdo things like blocks are horrific in Objective-C just because they had to be bolted on to what was already there, right? Yeah. 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 Instead, yeah. Always they have to look don't it up. change right. anything. And so I yeah. coming back to, to Aaron's example of Manton Reese, I, I did listen to that most recent episode, I think it was, of Core Intuition, and Manton was uh, was pretty salty about it. And he does <laughs> have a point, right? Like going towards the, you know, Swift as being like crazy irresponsible from one perspective on, on changing things. But when I look from another angle, I'm like, yeah, you kind of haven't had to learn anything new in Objective C for ten years, right? It, it's from 2006 yeah. to 2016. Of course, well, you, your code that's, from that's ten a years bit ago of an still exaggeration. works, right? right. I mean, it it yeah, is, but, but it's just like yeah. Swift doesn't change every week, you know, right. either in any meaningful way. Um, but I remember uh, remember properties, the way properties work and synthesizing work, changing every WWC for a few years. There, sometimes the IVARs were underscores, sometimes they weren't. Sometimes you had to use synthesize, sometimes you didn't. And if you did use synthesize, it put an underscore in. But if you didn't use synthesize, it didn't put an underscore in. Yeah, and if, you wanted, and if you yeah. wanted to use it your own way, you had to make it equal to however you wanted to use it. Exactly. Right, right, right. So, yeah, so Objective-C was changing too. But but I get your point, I mean, I mean, Swift is changing much, much more quickly. And uh, maybe is is at a little bit of risk of, of trying to be you know designed by committee here. Uh, so it just has to be careful about that. Yeah, and right. I was just going to say, I put a link to Manton Reese's uh, Core Intuition podcast. It was uh, episode 242 uh, from two weeks ago, Manton's Out, where he explains how he has decided not to use Swift anymore. Now, the last time I listened to Core Intuition, I don't think Daniel Jalkett had looked at Swift yet. Has he changed since then? Yeah, he's tinkering with it a bit. Right, right. Hmm. But he's he's maintaining, a, obviously, a very large and significant Objective-C project in Mars That's Edit. true, right? yeah. Yeah, right. What's next? Um, diabolical scam or... Okay, let's do diabolical scam. Or, I don't know if the, the mega processor is interesting, um, but okay. uh, I, it was uh, bringing to mind also another uh, thing that is sort of similar from a book that I'd read, and um, it, it made me revisit the book uh, as in, in the hopes of sharing it with our audience, uh, The Three-Body Problem by Xixin Lin. Um, who was the uh, first Chinese language science fiction book to win a Nebula Award uh, a few years back. It's a fabulous book. I highly recommend it. And it uh, has a scene in it where they, in inside of a computer simulation, uh, put together 30 million soldiers, virtual soldiers in a virtual world, to uh, manually perform the actions of a computer by arranging them in logic gates of various types. And this story uh shows or lays out how this uh massive set of calculations in order to uh solve the three body problem which is um currently to known mathematics an insoluble problem 
which is an orbital mechanics problem when you've got three stars orbiting planet or vice versa and trying to determine uh, the location of those bodies at any given time uh, is too complex for our computers to understand. And in this early effort, they uh, did not have computers in this simulation. They had people. They created uh, sets of three to create logic gates of various type and performed a calculation, uh, which turned out not to work out for them. But it was still a very fascinating uh, elementary computer that uh, was very lovingly described in this book, The Three-Body Problem by Cixin Lin. And on the same topic, and this is why... Slight uh, correction on the physics there. Uh, The problem cannot be solved analytically. In other words, there's no closed form equation that will describe this like you can do with with a two-body problem, but it can be solved numerically. If you have a computer, you can solve it. Oh, fantastic. Now I I know. Well, these guys had a computer, so... (laughs) It was a it was a human computer and no. it was uh, a okay. human logic gates. Yep. Um, so in the you should read if you don't like uh, if you like science fiction uh, you will love this book. Uh, it is a wonderful book. And if you don't like science fiction, well, get over yourselves and read this book anyway because uh, it's wonderful. Hmm. And it's the first of a trilogy. I just read the second book, The Dark Forest, which was also wonderful. The third one is uh, coming out in the fall. Of course, it's been out in China for years and years, and they're actually making movies of them. Um, but the third one's English translation is coming out in the fall. This this is a point of interest for our listeners who uh, who might be interested in learning how a computer works at its most fundamental levels. And this is why I was reminded of the three body problem, where it, this this was demonstrated using people and flags to create logic gates. Well, here's a guy who, uh, for a weekend project, I have no idea, uh, decided to build what he calls the megaprocessor using uh, individual transistors to create a large-scale computer. Um, and there are pictures of it here where you can see um, the the construction of the computer with various LEDs showing the flow of data throughout the entire processor. And the processor takes up like I don't know, six to ten meters <laughs> worth of of wall paneling uh, with all this stuff wired up, and it uh, is really amazing to look at. And so, if you're interested in computers just in general uh, at the most fundamental level, then the Mega Processor link in the show notes will teach you more about that. And if you want to see another demonstration of it, go read the Three Body Problem. Okay, yeah, sorry. The Mega Processor is weird. It's like some mirror universe goatee wearing person said, "What if?" Moore's law needed a one over that two and decided to go the opposite direction. <laughs> we need our computers to be bigger. <laughs> yeah. There need to be half as many transistors for surface area every 18 months. That's right. <laughs> yeah. It's like a novelty check computer. Right. So, right. Uh, yeah. It's, it's good fun. Um, okay. So diabolical scam using iOS profiles. This is a tweet that David Bernard, uh, came out with, uh, just today as we were recording on Wednesday, the 3rd of August. And he ran across this on a website. The website is called weatherboxnow.com. And if you, if you pull out your iPhone, pull over first. And if you pull out your iPhone and go to that website, you'll be asked to enter your, um, your postal code or zip code rather, because I think it's really focused on the U.S., uh, in order to get a weather forecast. And, you know, by all appearances, it looks perfectly legit. But when you enter that uh, zip code, I entered 90210 because it's the famous zip code ever. It That's my actually zip code does too. something. 
Is it? Yeah, yeah. It's the one I use everywhere. Um, it does something interesting, though. You enter the zip code, and what it does is offer to install a profile on your iOS device. So this will work probably on your iPad, too. So what it does is say, hey, you know, like to, to get weather updates, uh, weather update, weather box now, will send you updates. Uh, just install this provisioning profile. Well, not a provisioning profile, developer profile, right? Uh, that if you're on your phone, you go to your settings and uh, to general and then down to profiles. And if you're a, a, a developer yourself, you'll have your iOS 10 beta profile here. This is the configuration that allows you to uh, to get those updates to iOS 10 when they come out. But uh, this website, and pretty much any website, this is not a new technique or anything. It's just a, a rather diabolical use of it, I think. It's a configuration profile that adds an email account to your phone. Now, I didn't go through this whole process because uh, I don't want an email account on my phone. But um, I think what it's doing is it's it's using that as a channel to, to send emails into your phone uh, without actually getting your email address. Hence the term diabolical. So uh, if you go to the phone, uh, go on your phone and go to that URL, uh, it's safe to do, uh, but uh, it's going to offer you to install this configuration profile, and uh, I recommend that you don't accept it. But uh, I further recommend that you go around to the, the loved ones in your life who have iPhones um, and check out their configuration profiles and make sure they're not getting scammed in this way or, you know, receiving mysterious emails, put it that way. Weird Did that stuff. make sense to everybody? Yes, totally, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That was diabolical. It's diabolical. <sighs> what will they think of next? Could not be more bored. Let's um No, you you know, I just I'm I'm actually I'm actually kind of annoyed really because I sit here thinking to myself, I remember the days when it really didn't matter if I had a strong password on my computer or not. And now I hate the fact that I have to use two-factor authentication and one password <sighs> to manage stuff cuz like cuz people are just freaking evil and with the it's the internet really right yeah like it's yeah. the internet yeah like without it. the internet there wouldn't be this huge always on vector yeah that's and, true yeah and, and i just I, I missed the days when you know you could leave your front door unlocked and you could leave your computer password you know with some silly made for fun password and not have to worry about you know people doing dictionary attacks and all kinds of other nasty stuff right yep And you could build a web service that you didn't have to think about security, except nowadays that's the very first and only thing you're thinking about for the first, like, 80% of your development process. Yeah. 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 Yep. (laughs) I'm with you. Alas, there's not much we can do about it. Yeah. So, uh, Unless you want to rebuild your computer just using people making logic gates, and then... That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Stand at the top of a pyramid and call down. Yeah. I, I'd Begin. Be of, I'd be afraid of the rounding errors. <laughs> right. They'd be the worst. <laughs> yeah. Shall so, we do picks? Yeah. We, we should do picks. We We're there. there. We're right. so there. It hurts. Okay. So Aaron, let's do yes. some picks. Okay. Let's do some picks. I, I have a pick. All right. uh, today, uh, Agile Bits, makers of One Password, introduced a new subscription plan for their t- titular product, One Password. And uh, it's for individuals. Now, they've already got uh, subscription plans for teams. So if you're uh, in a business and you work with a bunch of other people, you can have a shared repository of your uh, common passwords. Um, They also have one for families. So if you're in a home and you have a family full of people that are using 1Password, they have a subscription-based service that you can subscribe to. And uh, again, like with Teams, share your passwords amongst all of you uh, for one monthly price. Today, they have introduced 
individual subscription plans, which I believe has probably been their end goal from day one. This is a product that for $3 US per month, they will keep you up to date on every version of 1Password for any platform. So you'll get it automatically for iPhone, iOS, uh, Mac, even Windows and Android, if that's your bent. And uh, it has the syncing component built in as well. So you don't, if you use Dropbox, for example, today, as I do, to sync your password repository between platforms, uh, you can then switch to using 1Password's uh, sync. So uh, that's actually kind of handy because, uh, as I related last week, I had to flush by both my Macs and reinstall. And one of the first things, of course, that I want to have is my 1Password account so I can of start course, logging yeah. into things again, yes. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, I have to wait for, one, for a Dropbox to sync up first. <laughs> which is, a, is an hours-long process. And hmm. uh, so that's kind of inconvenient. If one pass, if I had been using the 1Password service, I would have been up and running probably right away. So uh, what's the difference between this yeah. and, like, so I, I own, you know, the, the Mac version and the iPad yes. or the iOS version. What's the difference between having bought it in the past and this new service? Well, yeah, so same here. And uh, those aren't going to stop working. You're, you're, and you can still buy them individually i guess you could say so as they come out with new versions they would of course reserve the right to charge for those updates so uh i think sure, right about course, now yeah. like they're like one password if you want to buy it for the mac it's like 69 dollars or something like that wow I'm not sure the exact number but it's you know it's it's real money yeah. um the ios version is much less expensive i think on the order of 15 dollars, and they often do sales too so it's something to keep your eye out on if you're you know crazy and not using this app yet but um for everybody should have this app yeah pretty much uh but for three bucks a month uh i think it's not a not a difficult calculus to make uh for 36 dollars a year you know and you've got this um always the up-to-date version of the apps um and the other the other feature being the the online sync and ability to use it on any platform without any configuration Oh, and they also have a free for six months incentive. Yeah, there. yeah. That's um, if you sign up before September something twenty first or something like that. Yes, September twenty first, you get the first six months for free. How do you like that? And so the Mac app remains at sixty five dollars. Where do you see the pricing for that? I'm looking, looking at that. the Mac Stories article that we've linked in the show notes here. Okay, I'm looking at Agile so, Bits website under pricing. So yeah, I'm looking at the Mac Stories article, and it says the Mac app will remain sixty four ninety nine, and the in-app purchase that unlocks the pro features of the iOS version, because the iOS version is free to download, but there are pro features that are it's ten dollars to unlock that one. If you if you are using One Password today, the question really is, you know, do I abandon my bought off the shelf version of One Password and go with this subscription model? The answer is. You know, really, it depends. Like, are they going to come out with, like, 1Password 7, I think they're going to be at next? Yes, 1Password 6 is the current version. They come out with 1Password 7, say, in November, and it's another $65. Are you better off doing that or paying 3 bucks a month? And uh, that's sort of the well, calculus. And it's not 3 bucks a month. It's actually billed annually, it says, on their website. So Oh, yeah? Is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so it's, it's, a, it's a purchase or you're buying a service for the month. And, again, it's it's we've been seeing this sort of migration towards subscription pricing across the board with many apps, right? Exactly. That's kind of the point I was coming to is that uh, every business that's trying to uh, provide a future for itself is looking for ways to give you a subscription option so that they can have this recurring revenue. 
which is of course you know <laughs> a double-edged sword right like we yeah. we as as customers are not huge fans of it because while we like individual apps uh for example one password i'm a huge fan i've i've been using mm-hmm. it for years and i i know the people that work there and they're great people yeah. and i want to i want to see them succeed so i'm much more likely to give them this money every month or uh, once per year as the case may be but as that adds up you know you start to get this subscription fatigue that uh, we're all very concerned about as as developers ourselves, right? Like we're not agile bits, you know, we're nobodies. And so if we come up to the market with a subscription product as the only viable means of, of making a living off of these apps, um, you better have a damn good story to tell because, uh, people are going to be extremely leery about paying this much. And I've, I've seen it myself today in response to this article, three bucks a month. Oh, come on. Like, what do you want? (laughs) There's always going to be that. Anyway, uh, suffice to say, it's my pick of this week because uh, 1Password is a super high-quality product that is incredibly useful, yeah. um, helps you stay secure, and uh, I could not live without it. It's it's like the first thing I install on my Mac when I install a new Mac. It's the first thing I put on my iPhone. So uh, it's a great product to have. And if you don't have it now, I think it's easy to say, go ahead and sign up for the subscription plan because for sure, yeah. um, then you have it everywhere. Right, and it is it's indeed just- everywhere. I'm... I remember them being multi-platform, so it's available for the Mac, for iOS, for Android, and for Windows. As long as you have Windows yeah, also, 7 or higher. Also, if you want to, they also have a really cool SDK, and if you put it into your app, it uses a, there's an open sort of standard for these types of apps. So if you add support for uh, 1Password in your app, you're actually also adding support for the other password managers, none of which I can remember the name of right now, because they don't matter. That's right. <laughs> No, but there are other, other password managers, and uh, apparently the uh, I think we were talking to a friend of the show, Mark Eaton at NS North, who now works for Agile Bits, and he was telling us that the um, the SDK works; it supports other like-minded uh, applications. There you cool. go. Oh, do you think this is part of the the new subscription piece that uh, Apple's allowing subscriptions, or is this just a different uh, different strategy for Agile Bits? Things it's built annually, kind of thing. Yeah, well, what uh, what you're asking about is really uh, Apple's in-app purchase mechanisms uh, for its auto renewing subscription, yeah, and the different business terms that they now offer. Does Agile Bits offer this as an in-app purchase auto renewing subscription? I don't know. Um, I suspect mm-hmm. though that what you're going to do is go to their website and create an account, right, and yeah, uh, yeah. and then pay for it. Uh, in which case. That's where you would do it. <laughs> so this would not have anything to do with their auto-renewing subscriptions. But it might also be possible to do in the uh, iOS App Store as well. Right. I just don't know. We'll move on to the next person. Hi, May. Do you have a pick? I do. And it's a real quick follow-up to uh, previous picks. It's still related to the um, U.S. only. And I apologize profusely for that. U.S. only Amazon Echo and its uh, Alexa skill service. Um, what, so, do you want to marry Alexa or what? What's with you? <laughs> you know, I, I, I would not be surprised if somebody does that somewhere at some point. There's, <laughs> there's been individuals in Japan who have married their um, uh, some sort of like uh, Nintendo DS, uh, like dating character sort of thing. Yep. Wow. Yep. Yep. So in, in this case, this is a tool to help you make particular kinds of skills. Uh, in this case, kind of more of like a like a game tool that would have uh, like you remember those old text adventures where oh i open the door or pick the lock on the treasure chest sort of thing uh and in this blog post from amazon's um developer community uh posts they talk about um how this tool it's it's a uh, free open source it's written in node.js 
it gives you a nice little um, graphical interface for creating the different things you want to do, right? So you, you see things as like like a, almost like a process flow chart where you have a, a starting bubble. Um, you can see the different, you know, what are the different options you're given uh, or going to give to the user. And then a little like GUI to put together the, um, like the card metaphor interface that would show up on their, on the user's um, Alexa app, uh, as well as, you know, what's the voice information that's triggered? Because they, they don't necessarily have to be the same, right? Uh, different context, uh, different kind of information. Uh, and they reference the Wayne investigation skill, which if you do have an Echo and you haven't played this game, it's um, a murder mystery related to the Bruce Wayne uh, parent investigation. Like, you know, what ended up happening to them? It, it's real fun. It's like um, a mix between old school radio and a choose your own adventure book. And uh, of course, that one is, you know, professionally read and everything. And everything that I've seen so far for the uh, Alexa skills, you would pretty much be listening to Alexa herself reading this thing. So it's it's not exactly the same, but it looks like real quick and easy. I, I got to admit, I've not tried this out myself, but in terms of having awareness for folks who are looking to do more integrative things, projects, and or are looking for, you know, how do I get into voice enabled UI or yeah, yeah, voice enabled UI and deal with things uh, that are not necessarily within the strict periphery of uh, iOS development or Apple-based development. So I wonder okay. how long it'll be before someone puts Zork or the old Scott Adams adventures onto that. Right? Because this thing, like, you know, yeah. if you just went through, created everything, this will generate the uh, the uh, JavaScript for you, the, the Node.js yeah. JavaScript that you can just push right onto Amazon's uh, cloud system. Yeah. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah. I guess. Come on, Tim. You must have played those Scott Adams adventures back in the day. You know, I I, I think I may have read one or two of those books, but I, I never really got into them much. So yeah, you never played Zork or just Adventure for if you're if you're uh, really an old timer. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. No. No, sorry, Bob. Did you ever play uh, Rogue on on a mainframe? No. Oh, uh, this was this was back in the eighties. On VT100 terminals, there was this game where it would—it was actually graphical, it wasn't text, but it would draw like a dungeon using ASCII characters, and you'd use the arrows to move around, and and right. you know you were some ASCII character, and you'd, monsters would be some other ASCII character, and you'd have to fight the monsters and things like that. It'd be a single ASCII Back character, or it'd be made up of ASCII characters. You know, I don't remember now. I think oh. that you were just like a dollar sign or something like that. Oh, okay, right, <laughs> this right, was, right. you know, this was early days. <laughs> well, I have landed. I have landed the lunar module on the moon. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Character, yeah. yeah. Yep, yep, yeah, yep. With, yep. Uh, with uh, retro rockets and stuff like that. And you cap- captured a lot of wumpuses too. I imagine. Uh, don't know. Hunt the wumpus? You don't remember that? Nope. nope. Oh my god. <laughs> All right. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you Mark, know, some things a... never go out of fashion though, because like rogue likes are really mm-hmm. popular nowadays. Uh, uh, great, yeah. they're not using single ASCII characters to represent something. It's usually you know two D or three D graphics in a dungeon of some sort. But right, you have right. Permadeath, and it gets like more you know more and more challenging for yourself. To, like, can I get further? Can I gather more loot? Can I kill more monsters? Sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. I think one of one of my picks was a game like that actually once. Maybe you weren't on the show that time, Jaime. Um, Mark, so I think do you have that, 
Technically, I have two picks tonight. Well, I was going to say, do you have a pick for something that might work in Canada? <laughs> something that might work in Canada. Oh, well, Mark has two picks uh, now because I just I gave him picks. a pick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they both work in Canada, as I, unless I'm wrong. Uh, the first one is an article that's just kind of for fun. It's uh, it's on the Thrillist website, uh, and it's called Apple Store Secrets: Horror Stories Revealed by Former Employees. And it's just, you know, it's a real quick read, kind of fun, not, right. not too much to it. It's just some alleg- uh, anecdotal stories uh, about uh, things that happened when they were working at the store and, and a couple of little tricks to get free stuff out of out of the, uh, the geniuses, if you're, if you're lucky. Uh, so nothing really do- too deep to it, but uh, just kind of a fun read. It'll take you five minutes to read. Uh, the other one is an app that just came out yesterday, and it's the finally released new version of the Apple TV remotes. And uh, so it's an app that runs on your iPhone and pretty much does exactly the same thing that the that the Siri remote on Apple TV does, but except way it's better. way easier to use because you can you can swipe over the entire surface area of the phone, pretty much. And, uh, you know, the, the hardest part about that Siri remote is the sweep area, the, the swipe area is really, really tiny. So... Just trying to type in a long password means your you know your thumb ha- thumb is going crazy uh, moving around that thing because uh, you can't go very far per in every every time you swipe. But this thing is much better. I mean, I, I was using it this afternoon. I was trying it out, and it's just it's it's just awesome. So if you have an Apple TV and you have an iPhone, no brainer. Just yeah, I use it. I was gonna say yeah, I've uh, I've been using it. Uh for the last couple of days, actually, um, watching Netflix and stuff like that, because now I can finally control my Apple TV in a much better way. I did find uh, an interesting thing, though. I was doing some searching, and this could be a flaw in Netflix app. I'm not sure um, ah. their TV app, but um, when you do, when you when you have using the phone as your remote, um, you can press to hold to talk to Siri. But if you have the keyboard up and you're in the search uh, pane. You know, so you have the you have the, the line where you can enter your text, and you have the keyboard there. There's no way to tell Siri that you want to search for something rather than type it out uh, verbally. And it, of course, the Siri built into the phone gets confused when you hold down that Siri button, so the home button. So that's kind of a weird experience. But other than that, it's uh, it's been pretty great. I mean, like you know, um, I can actually open up the app, tap the tap anywhere on the screen, and it actually launches the Apple TV, fires up my TV. I'm instantly into into the whole TV experience. I think it'll make a huge difference, especially for, like you said, entering in key or passwords and and uh, searches and stuff like that, because you get a proper iOS keyboard to do that with. Yep. Yep. And a good battery life. I don't know about you, but but the battery on my Siri remote for the Apple TV is is pretty poor. If I wow. use it use it for a day and don't plug it into the computer, it's it's uh it's it's gone by the next time. I Whoa, use it. there's something wrong with your remote. Yeah, really? Sure. Oh, you guys mine, don't have mine that? lasts oh, for months, months. Months. Oh, oh yeah. okay. That's that's good to know. Hmm. Use it every day. Well, now it's moot though because I'll just use the iPhone remote. Yeah, I wonder what kind of activities Mark's doing with his Apple TV. I, I think <laughs> Mark <laughs> has some sort of mutant power because this is not the first battery that he has had trouble with. That's true. That is true. Yeah, yeah hmm. like pushing out some extra magnetic waves or something. Hmm. Yeah, bad, bad karma. Bad battery karma. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Hmm. Right. Tim, you got a pick? I do. Um, it was actually going to be uh, part of the, the talk today, but since Mark 
kind of wanted to talk about the Apple TV remote, which I think is cool. I decided to make my uh, pick of Natasha Murashev, who is also known as Natasha the Robot. Uh, did a talk at a, Brick, a Brooklyn meetup um, about practical protocols with associated types in Swift. And it was a really interesting talk because she uh, does a very good job of explaining what, in fact, uh, those are. And um, she also mentions a few other talks in the in the middle of her talk. And one is um, Protocols with Ex uh, Associated Types by Alexis Gallagher, uh, which is a bit uh, of a Brainiac talk. He's a pretty smart guy. And I think I talked about uh, Gwendolyn, um, i forgotten her last name. That's what I was looking at my notes earlier before. Gwen, oh, I, have it down. I don't have her last name, sorry. Um, but she talks about uh, type erasure in a talk, and I'll put a link in the show notes for that talk as well. And anyway, so it's, it's, and then she also mentions a friend of mine, uh, Matthias Holman, talking about mixins and traits. Uh, but it's interesting uh, way of uh, the takeaway from the talk is uh, she goes through, um, you know, it's interesting. I don't know. I don't know why these people are using Pokemon as their as their uh, their sort of uh, game type. Um, Gwen was doing it long before Pokemon Go came out, which I find interesting. And uh, of course, now Natasha's doing it because of Pokemon Go. But uh, talking about how uh, these things work with uh, generics and uh, enums. And basically, the, the bottom line is uh, it, it's a way of creating um, uh, much more composable code without using subclassing. Uh, makes it easier to test and uh, do injectable code, and basically a, a great way of uh, creating powerful and abstract code without subclassing. So, uh, I recommend the the video talk. Uh, take a look at it if uh, it's sort of in plain language, if you will. Um, very clear. So that's. Um, protocols with associated type it's timely because uh, uh swift 3 beta 4 uh introduces a new associated type keyword right uh that you can use and as as distinct now from the type alias which did double duty prior right. to this yes so. yeah, good point so this was at a this is at a meetup though They're like just like a normal meetup group well, I don't um, know if it was a normal meetup, but a, a Brooklyn meetup, and there's a number of videos listed there, so I think it might have been like a mini conference. Okay, that's what I was going to ask because I, for those of you driving at home, um, I'm quite jealous if this is like a normal meetup space because it looks like <laughs> a beautiful area. Like normally, you go to a meetup, it's you know some company's office that's nice enough to you know let everybody chill in there, and you have a projector on a wall, or if you're lucky, they have a screen. This is more like oh, I'm giving a keynote to some investors sort of setup like this looks incredible for uh giving a talk yeah indeed yeah brooklyn swift developers meetup for july cool yeah all right and there's some other interesting uh, links there as well for uh different kind of talks as well but i think it, i think it was like a mini conference that she was there for um but yeah if you're interested in that kind of uh, uh stuff uh check it out sure okay good our work here is done tim all right okay so um aaron if people want to find you on the internet how would they do that? Twitter. I'm on Twitter. Find me there. Right. And um, hi, I'm also on Twitter to... as at Dev with the Hair. Okay. And Mark? Mark R at smapsoft.com. All right. And my name is Timitra. I'm T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on Twitter. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There, you can find the summary and show notes of each episode. 
We list links to the items we talked about on the show, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website, and if you can, please write a review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press that recommend button. It really helps others find out about the show. You can also follow us on Twitter. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast. And if you'd like to support us, you can pledge any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc. Thanks again for listening. Did I go on too long about the 320 stuff today? No, never, that was perfect. Never no, that was perfect. Never talked too much. Okay. That was perfect. I mean, and and because I remember I, the reason I brought it up because I remember you telling me about that at the time that you know when you first started work. I was going to mention that was one of the things you told me about when we first started working together was right, um, right. was that these because yeah, Mark at the time really wasn't happy with third party libraries. Oh, yeah, no, but this yeah this this one this other one that I was talking about with 320 that was just. A nightmare because yeah. it was all libraries and they were all yeah, was a- out of date and not updatable. <laughs> well, the reason why I asked because I was curious because I because you know there's Matt Triple T and I just remember I remember there being three T's in it or something or two T's or what like you said right yeah T- yeah the 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 uh, uh, the name spacing was definitely T T blah yeah like T T menu or whatever yeah. yeah yeah but I think a lot of those classes or some of those classes sort of survive the death of 320 and kind of morphed into yeah. into other things. Because some some parts of it, it, I mean, it was just a giant library in the real sense of, of the word of, of uh, you know, a lot of <coughs> unconnected components that you could use that, you know, that were just parallel and not connected to each other, parallel to each other. Mm-hmm. So you could, so you, it was possible in some cases to pull certain things out and use them without using the full, the full uh, library. Uh, so, so some of it did survive. Um, there were a couple of things that that existed that Apple just still has never done. But actually, speaking of properties and stuff like that, um, yeah, or atomic, I should say, at- atomicity, which is one of the atomicity, sections in yeah. in his book or his uh, our, yeah book, I guess uh, Matt's book um, about he talk like because you know he, he talks about uh, you know what atomic versus non-atomic is and why you know what it is read write and read only yep and then he talks about a sign strong weak unsafe unretained and copy you know i don't think i've ever seen unsafe unretained but he explains that it's very oh. similar to a sign right well it's it doesn't really it, it may it's probably it probably still exists you can probably still use it but it's kind of deprecated it, yeah, was, yeah. it was when they first came out with arc there was no weak yeah. So, so this thing, unsafe, unretained, was was weak, essentially. Yeah. Well, also the actually is weak. You don't need it anymore. Yeah. The other thing that I thought was kind of it, that that I hadn't never never really came across an explanation of of method names like using getter equals with the carrots and then the name inside the inside the carrots and setter equals, which isn't used that often, but. Um, like I see that a lot in code, and I, I've often wondered what does that really mean. And, oh. and what, he, what he explains is that what's in the caret is the name you're going to refer to that getter by. You know, you, have, you know how now we have the automatic getter and setter kind of methods. Right. You have the, the right. get blah blah blah, and you have the set blah blah blah, right? Yeah, Where, yeah. You know, dog is whatever dog, and 
the getter's daughter. Oh, right. So this is this is if you wanted to name your Ivar something completely different. Yeah. Like your, yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. And I and I've yeah. seen I see that in code every now and then. And like it's one of those sort of things that I've never gotten around to asking anybody about. And that's that's what I'm saying about this book, which is interesting, is even I realize Objective C is dead and all that kind of stuff, but but <laughs> but I mean so wasn't that clear? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, it's dead it's dead, but I'm making the majority of my income doing it right now, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but the uh the uh you know, so this book is kind of handy because it's kind of like uh it, it as opposed to a lot of books out there, which either either process or they they guy gives his theory about it, uh, things. Yeah, I was yeah. trying to get the word out, but yep. or or they um or it's or it's a how to book, you know, yeah. step one, yeah. step two, step three, and and while it's it's handy to learn to do stuff that way, you don't really understand why you're doing it, right? Right, right. right. And that's kind of sort of what this this book does is he doesn't. There's no. I mean, he has code examples uh, in all throughout the chapters, but you know, explaining what these these sort of words mean, like why why is it always non-atomic? And oh, hey, you know, if you don't put non-atomic, it is non-atomic by default, you know. So little things like that that he puts in there, you know. That uh, never really thought about it's it. Never really. Default. It's atomic by default. Yeah. It's okay. Atomic. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, he does say that in the book, and I, I realized I mis, mis, mis said that as soon as I said it. But anyway, um, yeah. No, it's it's handy. It's like you know, I'm like you know, a quarter of the way into the book, not even right. So it doesn't cover everything, but he covers a lot of uh, a lot of interesting tidbits about stuff. And actually, he's the author of. He wrote a blog post once on. Um, optionals right and it was it was one phrase in that entire blog that explained to me or the light went on in my head by the way he explained it what an optional is you know because mm-hmm. for all the time i'm thinking like what is this optional thing and you know and then and then he basically kind of explained in a manner of speaking that the optional is the container that contains either a value or not a value right oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah so like like the zen the zen uh, parable about uh, the fact that the cup of tea, a cup, is not the tea; it's the container for the tea. You know, in the, in the Zen parable, is that your brain is like your mind is is like an empty cup, right? You have mm-hmm. to fill it with knowledge. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have too much knowledge, and you have to throw some of the knowledge out to put new knowledge in. <laughs> yeah, and and if you have if you have no knowledge and you try to access it, you often crash. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. There's, right. uh, by the way, Mark, there's a there's a page before you go away. Yeah, there is an MTJC page on web, on Facebook as well. I don't know. Oh, is on Facebook? Is so a, feel feel free to post. Idiomatic Swift uh, puppy dog. Yeah, picture. Yeah, and then uh, there's pictures of our fans. Oh, cool. There's a picture. Right. If you see, there's a dog there sitting on top of Greg. And if you look at the photos on the on, top on the side Greg. there, oh, kind of a, a white dog with a brownish that's, snout. That's Mac. That's oh, Mac. That's Mac. Oh, okay. Yeah. Funny. And Greg's face is like, get this dog off of me. <laughs> no, no. Greg, Greg was trying to do a selfie with uh, with Mac and Mac. Oh, he was. None okay. of it. Yeah. Yeah. 